politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, and property all over again, just like 1776. This is your only host that is actually focused on what matters in the way it matters at the time it matters here at CR Podcast. Brand new week, Monday, the 27th of February here. And as always, it is another great day to fight for liberty um, how do we do it? How do we do it? What is the most important thing we can do? What's the vision? What's that lighthouse at the end of the ocean? Where are we aiming the ship? Look, we could talk about the biomedical terrorism and how they're killing us with the, the, the COVID shots. There's news on that front. We could talk about the Ukraine scam, how we're already up to what, like half the amount we've spent on a hardware in, Viet- in the Vietnam War and we can't even tell where the battle lines are, what's even going on, much less how it's in our interest, and much less how it's not being funneled uh, towards some other scheme, all the while with the Ukrainian biolabs looming there. We could talk about the border, how our government is working with the cartels to invade our border and then prosecute border ranchers. Obviously, the economy is a toilet, our food fuel getting crushed, supply chains crushed, But what do we do? What is the most important thing we can do? And if we have time, maybe we'll get into start broaching the presidential election, which, as you well know, I don't think it's the most important thing, not by a long shot. But perhaps if done right, and particularly if there is the right candidate running, maybe it can be used for the most important thing if that individual runs a very different sort of presidential election to build a movement, not just achieve the office of presidency, which, as you well know, I don't even think that's going to do anything for us in the state of being we're in. So that and more, a lot to cover this week. By the way, um, the the price on the book, Amazon dropped the price of the Rise of the Fourth Reich 10 bucks. So, hey, I'm all for that. I don't care about making money. I want to make it more available. So it's cheaper to get more copies to give out to your friends. It's now like $18 instead of uh, $28. So they dropped it, and that's that's a good sign. Um, one other housekeeping thing, um, Dr. Eric Henson, the Texas freaking medical board under Greg Abbott is going after him. Le- they're taking legal action for his whole thing of not settling with them after refusing to wear a mask. This man saved hundreds of lives, including many people in this audience. He has a give, send, go called Stop Medical Tyranny. He really, really does need help for his legal bills there. This is a very important fight. GiveSendGo.com slash Stop Medical Tyranny. And again, this ties into ultimately what we need to do. But we'll get there in just a moment. Um, One thing we can do, by the way, is support our sponsors, for parallel economies with our own movement. So what's a vital product or service that you get? Soap, shampoo. Uh, We all need it, um, unless you want to walk around like a hippie. So our friends at QP Goat Soap are the only ones who make goat, really goat milk-based, healthy, 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 so, because remember, it's not just what you eat, it's what you put on your skin. Anything you put in goes in. 
It's raw milk, whole oils, and citrus, ensuring these items are properly handled at each step of the way. Uh, QP Goat Soap, um, run by 15-year-old QP, Quinn Pittman, in Volusia County, Florida. They have a farm. They just got new goats. This is his... This is his job. He's already an entrepreneur at 15 years old. While he is a homeschooler, he focuses on Christian theology as well as the classics. What a model family. What an amazing family. They're also Blaze subscribers. So right now, I want you to go to qpgoatsoap.com. Check out their assortment of products. Um, uh, By the way, like they could be doubled up as, um, you know, Sent uh, the, the as as air fresheners within the bathroom because we use that for that too. They smell uh, heavenly, and all different things, shampoos, soaps. Check out your favorite there. Um, I like the cocoa, uh, but anyway, qpgoatsoap.com. And right now, they're extending their offer for another two weeks with promo code New Goats. In honor of their two new goats, 15% off. So make sure you load up on your product there, qpgoatsoap.com, promo code new goats. So what is it we do? What What is our goal? I think we all know what 1776 looks like is to use the existing structures of the red states to declare as much independence from the federal government as we can. But the problem, as we noted just right now, Texas, you you have the Texas Medical Board acting like CDC. We don't have real red states. We have red states in the sense that the majority of the voters vote Republican, but the Republican Party is killing us. Now, we do have some success we are gradually making in a few states, Florida obviously being one of them. There's a few others that are getting better. That's where we need to focus. We need, in order to get that quasi-national divorce, which is really the only hope, we need to accentuate radical federalism. But in order to do that, we need to make red states red again. So you have to pick the fight. You have to do things that will accentuate the federal-state divide, accentuate the red-blue divide, Red pill our people, expose the frauds, make those states red again, and that's your landing ground. There's no real shortcut to that. If you have a better idea, I'd love to hear it. There's no silver bullet when you come 40 years into this controlled opposition Republican Party, the Uniparty, and try to fix it. There really is no shortcut. But... If I had to say, again, it's not a silver bullet. There's no silver bullet. But what is the most important legislation? You know, I, I was somewhere, an important person recently uh, said to me, Daniel, what is the most important thing to do this legislative session? And that's a very tough thing because we have a whole laundry list of things we want to do. But without flinching, I said the most important thing that would be a force multiplier, because you could say, well, is it medical freedom? Is it the culture? Is it crime? Is it illegal immigration? But something that would cover all issues is a broad interposition bill where 
you authorize the state legislature to interpose against federal tyranny, whatever the issue is, if we believe it's unconstitutional, we declare it void and prohibit prohibit its implementation within the state and in many circumstances impose criminal penalties on that implementation. That is the most important thing we can do to create and exacerbate the divide we need because the divide is already there. As we noted last week, we have national divorce. It's just in one direction. The blue states do what they want and crush our people who live there. But in red states, we don't do what we want. We follow obsequiously whatever the federal government wants. And I will tell you, I believe we have a winner. We have a winner of the best legislation of the year. What I have found, at least from what I've seen, the best version of this, the Tennessee Nullification Act, Tennessee House Bill 726, if you want to look it up, Representative Bud Hulsey, or Hulsey, um, he introduced this bill. There's a Senate companion, SB 1092. And this is the most comprehensive um, nullification bill that I have seen. And to me, this is where <laughs> we need to put the most of our forces into getting bills like this passed in as many states as we can. Because if you got a bill like this passed, it's not just the outcome, but the process that would it would create. And that's what I want to talk about today. The process of involving the whole of the people, all of us, to throw a red flag and say, this is not right. You can't just sit back and say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do, Daniel. Win another election. Uh, uh, win a Supreme Court decision. Amend the federal constitution, which will never happen. And moreover, why do we have to amend our constitution in response to them illegally amending it to begin with? We only have one. We follow it. And we say no. You know, I'm not into this, like, wrapping around the constitution the era we live in. Right now, we're in a fight for survival, and I'm not about to make the Constitution a limiting authority on us. But my point is, if you do believe in the Constitution, there's only one thing that needs to be done about it. You make, in your spheres of influence, you control a county government, you control a state government, we will not abide by anything that's unconstitutional. Well, no, no, Daniel, I know, but you have to go to the court. No, no. That is where... You are wrong. And those of you who are with me in the era where we really talked a lot about my first book, Stolen Sovereignty, and we talked a lot about Rise of the Fourth Reich, but we're going to bring back some of the themes from Stolen Sovereignty, the right to individual sovereignty, state sovereignty. It resides with the people. Who get, The most important question, and this is the reason we are where we are, who gets to decide the Constitution? Who, he who laughs last, laughs best. Well, obviously, if there's someone who got to laugh last, you don't have limited government with separation of powers because that final say is the final say. So that's why the answer is there is none. There is none. There's this myth that the feds are supreme to the state and the Supreme Court is supreme to the other branches. So basically, whatever they say or allow to go 
is what 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 uh, prevails. And that's how we are where we are today, where we have all these things. We go, oh, it's not unconstitutional, but what are you going to do about it? We have to listen. It's the law of the land, the supremacy clause. It's the law of the Supreme Court. If we're going to abide by that, then we're screwed because you are actually using the fake constitutional constraint of the federal supremacy and judicial supremacism to impose something antithetical to the Constitution. So the Constitution is a joke. This is the only way to make the Constitution great again. It's called constitutional decompartmentalism. That everyone gets to decide. Everyone gets to decide. Everyone has a responsibility from the people to the counties to the state legislature to the governor to the federal officers to throw a red flag and say that is not correct. And actually mean it. And use your respective powers to push back against it. That, my friends, is the only thing we can do to stop tyranny. So I want to elaborate on how that works and just to debunk some of the myths behind it. So I'll first explain what the bill does and then give the legal rationale for it. Um, first, our other sponsor today, again, as you prepare with your food, the preppers were really ahead of time. Um, I used to make fun out of them. Boy, were they ahead of their time. Jace Medical, they're going to allow you to get ahead of your health care. What if you're caught with diseases and you can't get antibiotics? Think that's far-fetched? Well, not only is the FDA going after uh, prescriptions, but also because everything's made in China, 18 out of 21 critical antibiotics and 72% of the cre precursor ingredients are made in China or India. We have supply chain problems. You can't get a hold of even amoxicillin in some places. So if you want it on hand, here's what you need to do. Go to jacemedical.com, put in offer code REVIEW at checkout for a discount on your order. And then you, f you fill out, well, this is before you fill out a questionnaire so they can write you a legitimate doctor-prescribed prescription through their you know licensed medical professionals. So you'll have to answer some you know, medical history, and then you're going to get a Jace case. A Jace case provides five life-saving antibiotics from uh, azithromycin to amoxicillin, doxycycline, and you have it with you for when you need it. And if you cannot get a doctor or pharmacy to fill in the future, we are not going to repeat the same mistakes of the past. We are going to be prepared for the next uh, Fourth Reich. Go to jacemedical.com, enter offer code review at checkout. It's time to take your own life in your own hands. So just like you take your life in your hands, you need to take the Constitution in your own hands. So we've had this problem for too long. The federal government usurps the Constitution. Daniel, it's unconstitutional. Okay, but what are you going to do about it? Give a lecture? What are you going to do about it? And until now, it was all about win elections, but then even when you win elections, oh, well, the Supreme Court said this, Oh, uh, we have to overturn the constitution. You know, we have to constitutional amendment. So they say. So, for example, the federal government says that states are no longer allowed to define marriage between a man and a woman. Wait. So something that absurd. I'm going to say I. So that's the law of the land unless I amend the constitution. Are you kidding me? No. No. That's not how it works. So this is an amazing, amazing bill. 
both in its breadth and scope. First of all, it's beautifully written. It has a whole, it's like 22 pages. It has the full, whole first half is just, um, you know, citing the rationale and the state power. And I like how we, we quoted this a lot during the pandemic, um, during the pandemic of tyranny. It's in the Maryland state constitution, but it's also in the Tennessee constitution. It's in many state bill, bills of rights. That government being instituted for the common benefit, the doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish, and destructive of the good and happiness of mankind. That's Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution of Tennessee. It's in a lot of other states as well. This notion that, Daniel, there's nothing we can do. I'm like, wait, what? What are you saying? So first of all, even if the Constitution didn't authorize this, I would actually say you need to do it. You can't have the Fourth Reich and be like, well, we need to amend the Constitution. No, you have to fight back. But moreover, there's a fundamental, it's, it's the most dangerous, flawed view of the Constitution. Again, it's a two-step two steps process. That the feds are supreme to the state and that the Supreme Court is supreme, or even a lower court, for that matter, is supreme to the other federal branches or state branches when it comes to constitutional interpretation. And the answer is, that is false. And we're going to talk about why. But first, what this bill does is it allows any number of people, and, and, and what it is, is it beautifully works with constitutional decompartmentalism, which is the understanding that we all have a responsibility. <clears throat> So either the governor through executive order could declare um, a state policy unconstitutional. So they say you have to wear a mask. They say you have to uh, have uh, you know men in female bathrooms in a, in a public school. Governor could sign an executive order. This is unconstitutional, and therefore it is it would have the effect of being um, criminal to enforce that within the state. Or the legislature can do it with concurrent resolution. And any member could could force a vote. It's a privileged motion. It doesn't have to go through committee. So any member, so it breaks down all barriers to any elected official being able to assert this is unconstitutional. We're gonna. It, it doesn't force an outcome. It forces a debate. Although the governor seems to have that unilateral authority, you could debate that. Um, that's one thing. The state legislature could do it, and any individual member. So if you have one good member in the chamber, he could force a debate and a vote on that. That this is unconstitutional. Um, but that's not all. That's not all. Any state court, if it comes up through the course of a case or controversy through litigation, right? because courts can't just grab cases, but uh, they could also say, wait a minute, this federal edict is unconstitutional. That's not all. Any group of 10 local governing authorities, so municipalities and or counties, could get together and petition um, the legislature and, again, force them to vote on nullification. Force them to vote on it. And, and, and that's decided either either this county executive or mayor could do it or the majority vote in the legislative council, you know, county commission, county council, city council. They could submit that petition 
and then even more. And this speaks to the whole of the people. Any group of 2,000 registered Tennessee voters, as long as you have submissions of at least 50 at a time, so you can't do like one signature at a time over time, it adds up to 2,000 because then it's kind of ridiculous, but at least 50, you know, tranche of 50 signatures at a time, adding up to 2,000 people could also force the legislature to take up this debate and debate the constitutionality. And, And it's everything. It's not just an executive order. It's executive order of the executive branch, a law passed by Congress, or a Supreme Court decision, or or lower court. Any act by any federal branch could trigger this scrutiny, and it could be retroactively, too. There's no statute of limitations. So if we don't like court decisions from 70 years ago, you could do the same thing. We are not enforcing it here in the state of Tennessee. And... What do they have to take in mind, take into account as they're doing it? Well, the plain meaning of the original text of the Constitution, um, it would, obviously, the ratifying conventions, the statements that were taken from there, the, um, the, the statements of the original members of Congress, the original members of the Supreme Court, and they have a few other options, but one option that's not there, I love there, is case law, other Supreme Court decisions. And that's where we are. Since World War II, but obviously accelerating with the rise of the Fourth Reich, the federal agencies and courts have remade our lives, social transformation without representation. Those two branches have absolutely no lawmaking authority, even if their policies comported with the Constitution. Okay, the federal courts and executive branch have no lawmaking authority, but they've seized it. And we're supposed to just sit back? No. No. And what I love that this bill is doing is it's comporting with constitutional interpretation. So let's go back to that. Let's go let, let let's have a crash course in constitutional law here. You might say, "Well, Daniel, what do you mean? Isn't there the supremacy clause?" That the you know the fed the feds are supreme, not in constitutional interpretation. They're supreme in terms of the authorities granted to them legitimately that are constitutional are supreme to the state. So, for example, the federal government, whether we like it, has the power to tax. Okay. They have the power to tax. So a state can't just say, hey, I don't want to, we're, we're going to withhold the, the revenue of federal taxes. Okay, because that, that is a authority they constitutionally have. Whether you agree with the prudence of what they do, but they have a constitutional authority to do it. That's supreme. But there's three important words there. It's anything they do is supreme, it says, in pursuance thereof. Meaning it has to be in pursuance of the Constitution. But if they do things that are prima facie, out of bounds, banning your products and services and banning cars and banning this and regulating every aspect of your life, liberty, and property, that's not one of the enumerated powers, that is beyond a shadow of doubt, not in pursuance thereof. And even Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers, I forget which one offhand, it would be regarded as just a usurpation, just that. You'd, you'd, you'd ignore it. 
Okay, now this obvious obvious question. Well, Daniel, who determines what is constitutional or not? And that is the rub. The answer is each branch of the, the federal, state, and local government swear an oath to uphold the Constitution. Each one is responsible within their spheres of power and influence to only do things in concert with the Constitution and to possibly fight back against things that other branches are doing that they believe and they know to be unconstitutional. They all swear an oath. It's not the feds over the states and certainly not judicial supremacism, which is, oh, the courts. No. The courts, you could have litigation. And within the course of litigation, they have the right and indeed responsibility to look at the Constitution. The entire point of judicial review from Marbury v. Madison is a repudiation, if understood properly, of judicial supremacism. Because Judicial review is certainly you have executive review, legislative review, state review, county review, and yes, people review. People review. So the Jeffersonians didn't believe the courts should have any say in constitutional interpretation. And I guess the reason would be because they thought they were supposed to be the weakest branch, not equal, but weaker because they're not elected. Marbury felt, I mean, Madison, uh, uh, Marshall felt, Marbury v. Madison, that it would be immoral and a crime to issue an opinion contrary to the Constitution. So let's say, for example, the, um, you know, the state government or the, the Congress passes an ex, ex post facto bill criminalizing people like, like, what, like, for example, the state of New Jersey wanted to retroactively criminalize people in possession make it like a class e felony to possess a magazine with more than 10 rounds because that's patently unconstitutional so they you know you know they want to find them or throw them in jail so i go to court so madison's point what was what the court's supposed to just avert their eyes while i'm just seeing how to interpret the statute no if the statute is is unconstitutional it's not judicial supremacism it's constitutional supremacism but it means even also the courts get to decide. But certainly the other branches. So, so let's say it's the other way around. And the courts say, um, you must arrest Kim Davis for not issuing a gay marriage license. Well, that's unconstitutional. So the executive branch of the state, the state troopers in Kentucky, had an obligation to say, no, we will not do that. You see, it goes around in a circle. There is no finality there's res judicata, which means finality in judgment of an individual case. There's no res judicata on constitutional interpretation if it's in dispute. And who wins? It's public sentiment. You you each fight. The 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 federal government, you know, the, the courts will have the cases. Congress will have the power of legislation, the power of the purse. The feds will have the implementation. For example, let's say you have a good president and a good attorney general and the court's like, you know, you must go and, and do this. Well, who who would execute that? The federal marshals. Federal marshals are executive. They're like, we swore an oath to the Constitution. We're not going to do that. States, likewise, state government, county government, all three branches. And yes, the people themselves, meaning 
they say you must wear a mask. That's unconstitutional. We are going to get together and try as best as we can to not listen to it. We have an obligation to stand up and say this. And this beautiful bill, beautiful, beautiful bill, Tennessee HP 726, empowers the people to petition their legislatures to pass a statute criminalizing the enforcement of something that's unconstitutional and at least take up and consider their arguments to say and assert something is unconstitutional. It's a beautiful bill. This is the single most important thing that needs to be done. But this is the important thing to remember. There is no finality. You all kind of decide. It's not that you can't go to the courts and the courts can't rule on it. I'm all for judicial review. I'm against judicial exclusivity, judicial supremacism. You have legislative review, executive review, state review, and people review. You all have to, and again, depending on the issue and how it intersects with each respective power, sometimes you'll have a weaker or stronger hand depending on where you sit. And you have to use your voice, your power to fight it. That's constitutional decompartmentalism. That is the correct theory of constitutional interpretation. Because if one branch had the right to, to decide, guess what? You'd have tyranny. It was famously articulated during the sixth debate with Stephen Douglas by Lincoln in 1858. This was in Illinois. Judge Douglas understands the Constitution according to the Dred Scott decision, and he is bound to support it as he understands it. I understand it another way, and therefore I am bound to support it in the way in which I understand it. And that was his point. It's not that Dred Scott, the Supreme Court, is supreme when it says, you know, uh, black freed blacks are are um are property and and it's a violation of the Fifth Amendment to take them away. Um, it's constitutional supremacy. So Douglas agrees with that opinion. He's bound by it. I'm not. It's unconstitutional. And indeed, when he became president, Lincoln went and issued passports and citizenship documents to freed blacks in contravention to Dred Scott, or the, or the principle uh, that was uh, asserted in Dred Scott. And that's the point. Each one of us have that right. The only thing I disagree with in this bill from, um, from Bud here is, uh, Bud or Bud, is just the term nullification. I don't like that term. Because that puts us on defense, like they're the status quo and we're somehow nullifying it. No, we are shielding ourselves from their nullification, from their usurpation. Nullification is like what John C. Calhoun wanted to do. That was with the tariffs. At the end of the day, Congress did have the authority to put tariffs on. Now, they might have felt that the South and states like South Carolina got a raw deal from it based on the way their respective economies were. And they felt it was unfair, but at the end of the day, that was the system of government you agreed to when the Constitution was adopted. You got to fight it out. You got to fight it out in Congress in elections because they do have that enumerated power. I don't disagree with that. Now, you, you, could, you could debate when Congress uses its authority to do something that's totally immoral at some point. You know, it might be constitutional but repugnant. You know, do you have the right or should you fight back against it? We could talk about that. But I'm not even getting to that. I'm talking about things that are patently illegal that they are doing. 
The answer is in a republic, there is no finality. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, isn't that very chaotic? So during our founding, you have to understand there were very few major, major, major consequential issues they dealt with that it was like night and day. You know, they believe that they could that you have a constitutional right to cut someone's balls off, but not to wear a mask. You know, there, there was no such thing. I mean, the the issue of slavery was the big confounding issue of the time. You didn't really have too many other things where this came up, not not on a large civilization scale. Now, where we disagree over what a human is, what a border is, what a citizen is, what what a fundamental right is, so this is all the more important. If you're going to tell me, you know, because. You, you could find in some of the, especially the Federalists, some of their writings that they wanted, they had in a political agenda to make the courts the final arbiter. And they felt that in that time, the few disputes they had, they would rather leave it to the courts. But if you read their writings, and I've done shows on this before, it's implicit in their statements that it was a political um, goal and aspiration, not a legal imperative. It wasn't, it's not nowhere in the Constitution that the courts have the final say over constitutional interpretation. They wanted to establish a precedent like that. That was a political agenda. Um, but now where we, and, and you could say, look, you know, where it's a gray area, it's a few things, maybe I want to leave it to the courts. And we'll respect and their judgment and defer to them. But if you're going to live in an era like today where we have the rise of the Fourth Reich, I mean, really? that We're going to continue playing this game? So until this is taken down, we're screwed. Now, Daniel, what happens if they take us to court and the court says these laws are illegal? Look, you at least have to pick the fight. And this is where we need to begin. But folks... This is the most important thing you need to understand. The Constitution is of no private person's interpretation. You know, you get up there, and we have a debate, and we talk about the text, the ratification debates, the statements of the original members of Congress, and we see who has the better argument. It's the whole of a people in a republic. If nine men in black robes get to determine that, that's an oligarchy. And this is what we need to reassert. That states have this authority. You know, I just want to read to you a little bit from, uh, from the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Just so you understand this. It was during the fourth debate, um, Lincoln mocked Douglas's dogmatic obsession with Dred Scott like the whole time. And he scoffed at him. He says that his adherence to this principle is not because he says it's the right in itself, but because he has decided by the court, and being decided by the court, he is and you are bound to take it in your political action as law. Not that he judges at all of its merits, but because a decision of the court is to him, thus says the Lord. And he kept chanting it and making fun out of him like a court decision is the word of God. And people were laughing in the crowd. Thus says the Lord. August 21st, 1858. I cannot shake Judge Douglas's teeth loose from that Dred Scott decision like some obstinate animal that will hang on when he has once got his teeth fixed. You may cut off a leg 
or he may tear away an arm, still he will not relax his hold. And so I may point out to the judge, by the way, he calls him a judge, even though he was senator, but he was previously a state judge, so he mocks that, um, and say that he is bespattered all over from the beginning of his political life to the present with attacks upon judicial decisions. Meaning, because in the past, he himself criticized him. I may cut off limb after limb of his public record and strive to wrench him from a single dictum of the court, yet I cannot divert him from it. He hangs to the last to the to the Dred Scott decision. These things show there is a purpose strong as death and eternity for which he adheres to this decision and for which he will adhere to all other decisions of the same court. By the way, it's interesting how brilliant he was. You look at these debates and the people were like, this was like the Super Bowl. There were like tens of thousands of people there. How far we have fallen as a society. So we complain about these rulings, but then all the conservative leaders go, it's the law of the land until it's overturned. No, it's not. And if you weren't willing to go there, then you have to be willing now. The consequences are too dire. Okay, there is no such authority here. And this is the thing. This is the thing. It's all up to us. By pushing a bill like this, we will juice up, juice up the participation of the citizenry, elevate the importance of state lawmaking, and accentuate the dastardly deeds of the federal government. So in many respects, this will help make red states red, and it will pick a fight. Because this is how you, imagine you have all these legislatures now, you force a vote so they can't duck it, all these rhinos siding with the federal government over the state. Again, I cannot think of a better political strategy than this piece of legislation. Very, very well done in the rationale given and the way that the particularities of the bill fulfill the expression of decompartmentalized constitutional interpretation. It is of the whole of the people. And again, you might see a, a patchwork of enforcement around the country, depending on who's stronger. And that's how it's going to have to go. Oh, Daniel, there's a lack of uniformity in law. You know what? I would rather decompartmentalize freedom than centralize tyranny. Efficient uniformity. I could do without that. That's the biggest thing we need to do with decentralization of power. And this leads me to the presidential election. There's a lot to say what's going on, what's not going on. And, you know, you're going to have a bunch of rhinos running. You'll have a bunch of uh, people that are slobbering over Ukraine, Sununu and Pompeo and Haley and Scott, two from the same state. Mike Pence, I mean, one after another. But ultimately, it's going to be Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. I mean, that's pretty clear. And, you know, to me, as you well know, I don't think anyone can fix the federal government. My goal is not to take over the federal government, because I don't think you can. My goal is to shield ourselves in as many parts of the country as we can from the federal government. 
So that's why, to me, electing the right people for in red states and counties and having the right legislative agenda and, and these legislative strike force teams that we're setting up to actually focus on it and make the right plays is more important than being president. So right off the bat, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even care about that. And, you know, if Florida didn't have term limits on the governor like Texas yeah, you know, like who were struck by lightning. Texas and North Dakota don't have term limits, so we're stuck with the idiots, and in Florida we do. If it didn't have term limits, I would downright write a write a column and distribute it everywhere why I think um, DeSantis needs to just run for governor indefinitely and not run for president. And I think he would be more impactful there, and I actually think it would be a step down to run for president. But the reality is there, there are term limits there. So what, what are you going to do with a guy like that? So... Look, I'm not going to be like these other talk show hosts and try to, like, straddle the fence. Oh, I like them both. Dude, it's not even close. Like, if you're paying attention to what he has accomplished, every day he articulates one of our issues more than anyone else does, and he's on the right issues at the right time, the right way, obviously all over medical freedom. Um, I don't even have to say, well, Daniel, who, who would you support? I mean, it, it speaks for itself. I mean, we haven't had this since Reagan where you have the best policies and the most electability all in one guy. And he has a track record that no one else has ever amassed of actually putting points on the board. I mean, that's not even, it doesn't even get off the ground. I don't even need to say that. It's obvious. But what does need to be said is, oh, so, oh, so he needs to be present. If it's just going to be in the same conventional thing, oh, he'll be present. I don't think it will do much. I don't think it will do much if I were president. What I think could matter is, what if he ran on a platform like this to devolve the federal government as much as you can to make the states stronger? Exactly what we're talking about. If he would support some of this, go after judicial supremacism. Talk about decompartmentalism. Talk about making states stronger. Because again, I don't think you're gonna you're gonna fix the DOD HHS, but what if he ran on a platform of devolving it in a way that would shield ourselves from its impact? And what if he ran on a platform not just of running, oh, I want to be president, but I want to be the voice for that movement and shame every fake Republican that's not like that so that we get more governors and county officials and state legislators in the mold of DeSantis. Then in my mind, if that's what he chooses to run on, then to me, just the platform of the presidency of running, not so much being president. Okay, you're very limited. There's a 90-10 liberal Senate there. You ain't getting anything past that with Mitch McConnell. But to me, I think there might be more value of the actual campaign itself if he so chooses to run on this platform. And that's his choice. But that's what I would like to see. Not just, oh, I'll do this at a federal level, I'll do that. How would you put in place a system that will shield us from the impact of it? Because I think we're a lot more likely to succeed on, on that front than somehow turning the federal government into a force for good, 
which I just don't see us having the ability at a large scale. I mean, maybe one or two agencies, if you work hard enough, you can do that. But in the in the most impactful ones, I really don't see that. I really don't see that. We need someone who's going to embrace some of these bigger, broader, thematic ideas that have been avoided for so long. I'm just, oh, I'm going to cut taxes. I'll cut spending. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm going to cut spending. You can never cut spending. It's just not going to happen. But what if you have a system, and we'll, we'll, we'll develop this over time, to devolve power to the states. That's the way you could offload it because we're never going to wind up cutting these programs like in a meaningful way. I'm just telling you it's never going to happen. The best way is to devolve it in a state and then we could carve it up at a state level. And again, the blue states are lost anyway, but to maybe get a handful of states where we focus enough of our forces to make an influence at a much smaller level. To me, that's the only way any focus on the presidential election has value. And then perhaps it would have the most value because we need that force multiplier. Trump could have been that person. He could have been going around to all these state legislatures, campaigning for legislation, against legislation, shaming the rhinos. But it all had to be a vanity project. And by the way, I'm just telling you, What's very dangerous, the fact that he's so wrapped up in warp speed, it's not just retrospectively on the COVID shots, but the fact that we need to dismantle the entire DARPA biomedical security state and the gain of function and vaccines they're doing, they're all saying that they're building that state off of the success of warp speed, which is actually a misnomer because, of course, they developed it for a long time, for years, and that wasn't warp speed. But in Trump's mind, it's warp speed. And the fact that even now he is unwilling to shake that, that's not just one issue. That's very scary headed forward. That's that entire issue set. So I'm not going to be ambiguous about it. I'm not just saying, oh, I don't care about the presidential election as a way of copping out and saying, you know, I'm not willing to take a side. Oh, I mean, I, it, it, I don't even need to say it. It, just, it speaks for itself. You know, one defeats and one tweets. Or whatever he does, the true social now. Um, because he can't bring his ego to realizing that his platform has failed there. And by the way, they shadow ban conservatives there too. Um, so he won't crawl back to, to Twitter. But the point is, one just every day, every day gets something done. Every last shortcoming of, of his presidency, DeSantis is showing a blueprint to filling. And look, he's crushing us on the rankings now with his new book, but I'm fine with that. So I have no problem taking a stand. But it's like everyone comes up to me on the street, oh, Daniel, okay, uh, yeah, everything's so terrible. Um, who do you think is going to win? Are you for DeSantis? And I'm like, dude, you're missing the point. That, that, that's not... President, what I'm trying to say is the presidential election could be important, but only if it's not through the conventional lens that it's always been, of who is going to lead the federal executive branch. It has to be building this movement that we're trying to create through the platform of running for president. To me, that raw material is more important than the outcome of even becoming president. In other words, you and I now agree that this is the stupidest thing and it shouldn't be the most important thing. But in reality, is it is. And you're never going to be able to talk over 
the clamor of the presidential race once it you know really really accelerates. So my goal is how do we channel it for our purposes? That's my goal. But we need to understand. We have to stop with this thing. Oh, you have to win elections. Oh, you have to amend the Constitution. Oh, you got to do this, do that. You have to overturn Roe v. Wade. See, we didn't need that. We didn't need the Mississippi decision for that. The Dobbs opinion. We didn't need that. If it's unconstitutional, we need to say it so. Now, look, if it's one guy saying it, you're going to get crushed. But you have a bunch of states together. Both Madison and Hamilton talked about this. And this is why I support the concept of the Convention of the States and that the, the, that the um, solution lies outside of Washington. I fully agree with that. But I disagree with the notion that somehow we can't do anything until we get the blue states to – because you need you know 34 and then 38 states to do anything to do the right thing. We need to uphold the Constitution from their amendments, and we have the ability to do that in one state, one state at a time. Why, you know, why do we have to wait for that? I'd vote for it. I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm just saying, you know, there's no real roadmap to getting 38 states, and even the things that they're doing are very limited. I'm saying much broader. Anything that's unconstitutional, we're not doing here. I just don't like the term nullification. It just has a bad rap, and also, I don't, it's not accurate. Nullification is a question of, People who, true nullifiers, don't believe in the supremacy clause at all. I believe it's there. Now, I believe in overriding it if there's a need for humanity, but I'm saying you don't even need to come on to that. It's only in pursuance thereof. Okay? So we're not talking about a policy we don't like. Everything that the federal government is doing is not just a bad policy. It is not one of the enumerated powers. Even foreign policy, Ukraine. Now, that's kind of hard for a state to nullify. There's not much to do. But, yes, a, a, a federal government could engage in foreign policy. But there's no declaration of war. We're literally spending more money on that than Afghanistan. We haven't even declared war. Then again, we didn't declare war in Afghanistan either. I mean, there was an authorization of force. Here, there's nothing. Literally nothing. So that's the point. We need to move away from this notion that in order to do anything, we have to go through some sort of cumbersome process. This bill is something to watch. We, By the way, we do have a, a great Tennessee team set up. So if you want to join it, go to conaction.network. We have a Wyoming leader now. We have a lot of good states. We're still looking for a leader in Idaho, Montana, and South Dakota. We're still looking in Oklahoma. Kansas and Texas. Obviously, we're going to focus a lot on Texas and Florida. Their sessions are really going to kick off in March, which is really important. But to me, just to sum it up, more important than DeSantis becoming president and possibly doing what he's doing in Florida as president is if he could spawn a movement to make this the baseline for every other state official to do right now. He was on with Mark Levin show last night, um, you know, with the with, with with his new book coming out. If you're not on offense, 
then you're basically a sitting duck and you let these people come and just take pot shots at you all the time. It's hard for them to keep up with you when you're constantly doing new things and leading on different issues. And we pretty much kept that pace going throughout my tenure. And he totally gets it. We talked about this for years. Usually Republicans are like, even the better ones, like, oh my gosh, I could only expend my political capital on this. Quit while you're ahead. No. After you do one big thing on, on transgenderism, boom, come the next day on illegal immigration. Come the next day on, on crime. Come the next day on medical freedom. Just a no huddle, what they used to call in football during the 1990s Buffalo Bills, you know, no huddle offense, just constantly pushing it, articulating it properly, boom, 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 one thing. He gets it. So to me, if he can run and articulate a platform that speaks to our issues, that speaks to our processes, that speaks to our vision, then to me it's worth running for president, ironically, just for the run itself. Not so much even being president. Now, I think there are things that you could do if you are president. But again, a lot of these big ticket items, just remember. Just remember, you're going to have to pass the Senate. And you tell me how we're ever going to get enough votes there. That's part of the issue. But all these states where you have these massive, massive majorities, like in Tennessee, there's barely any Democrats left in Tennessee. Tennessee is also a trending red state in many respects. If you look at the electoral um, returns, I believe it was the only state that Trump got more votes in the second time around than the first time. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, potential there. This is the type of bill we need. That you have the whole of the people, the people petitioning the county governors, governments, the state legislatures, the governor, and then the more states that do it simultaneously, the more of a voice you have, the more of a platform you have, it's ultimately public sentiment, and that's how you turn it. So what they did is it's like a game. It goes around in a circle. They gave each you know, branch of government, and when I say branch, I mean both the three branches, but also state, local, and federal, different respective powers and spheres of influence. And when there's a disagreement, you got to fight it out. You got to fight it out. That is not just my novel approach. That is the Constitution. The Constitution is supreme. No one branch. But if you say that any one branch has the final say on constitutional interpretation, then you don't have constitutional supremacism. You have whatever that branch is supreme. And then nowadays, when they're 99% of the time against the Constitution, you are actually codifying what is antithetical to the Constitution under the guise of the Constitution. And again, you got to pick your issue, the ones you're going to lead with. You pick things that are more unpopular, you know, things that the feds have done that are more unpopular. You break people into it smartly. But this is the truth. You have to devolve to the states. You have to make states stronger. You have to have constitutional sanctuaries, interposition bills, and all these things are designed to create more friction between the conservatives and the rhinos like you're seeing in the South Carolina Freedom Caucus, some other states now, to root them out, make the red state governance reflective of the people, and then from there it's off to the races. The sky's the limit. To me, there's only one person beginning to articulate that vision at a presidential level. Tell me if you disagree. Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com. You could email me. But... What I'm saying is I'm not 
doing the DeSantis equivalent of Trump supporters. Oh, he's going to make America great again. I don't think that. As much as I think he's the most accomplished person we've ever had, and there's no close second, I don't think anyone alone could do that. To me, the question is, are you able to articulate a vision that will help facilitate national divorce? Now, obviously, you can't really run for president and say that. But what you can say is you're going to make states and local governance great again. And that's all we need to do what we want to do. Because let me just tell you, if DeSantis or Trump or really anyone for that matter, Republican would win the presidency, the blue states will show you exactly what we mean. Because they, they nullify, they actually engage in nullification. Blocking the feds from removing foreign national invader, you know, sex offenders. That is a federal authority, and they take it out. They take it away from them. All we're asking is, when legitimately the feds overstep their boundaries, for red states to do what blue, blue states did. And believe me, they'll ratchet up 100 degrees. They will do whatever they want under the next Republican presidency. We have that national divorce. Are we going to take the areas where the majority of people say they believe in what we do and actually make it a citadel, a, a sanctuary for godly values, for constitutional values, for freedom? So a little bit more philosophical today, but I wanted to get this off my chest. We'll get back to some of the news of the day. Uh, you know, tomorrow, have some more guests on the show. Let me know. Again, Rise of the Fourth Reich, um, still available, $10 cheaper. Um, ConAction.network to join one of our legislative strike force teams. Please give to Dr. Henson's Give, Send, Go at Stop Medical Tyranny. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.